You guys know we're in a series on the origin of scriptures. Where do we get the books that are in your hands? And we've been tracking a number of topics from the canon of the Old Testament, transmission, transmission of the New Testament, its canon. We've also looked at inspiration of scripture. And right now we're focusing on inerrancy and infallibility. We're starting tonight to talk about that subject. And we're going to do it for a couple weeks We'll see where we go from there. We're probably going to end up just talking about the translation of Scripture and the different translations you have in your hands as kind of a, a, kind of a lighter topic towards the end. Tonight, what I expect to do is to lay out what inerrancy is and what, what the people who believe in it purport to believe. I'm not going to do much more than that. It's going to take quite a bit just to do that. And then next week, Jeremy and I are going to kind of discuss it the way we did with inspiration a couple weeks ago where we'll take probably some divergent viewpoints and kind of discuss them and invite you to jump in. Tonight, I'm warning you, I'm going to have to read a bunch of stuff to you, but I want you to listen to what I'm reading and stop me and go, I don't understand what they're saying with that. That's okay. This is interactive. You're supposed to do that. If you're tracking with any of the books, (laughs) I doubt anybody really is, but just in case, we kind of entered the fifth book now. Um, So one more book to add to your reading list in case you want to know what I'm tracking through. I'm reading Norm Geisler's Inerrancy. He's put together a book that's written by a bunch of different people. It's essays again. Uh, Both this book, Inerrancy, and The Inspiration Authority of Scripture by Rene Posh are both books that are usually used in seminary because they have different essays and different viewpoints within them. But to be fair, they mostly come from an evangelical viewpoint. Uh, reading a bunch of articles online to track the other viewpoints to get some ideas of what people disagree with. You'll see a few comments tonight about disagreements. So here's a general point I want to start off with. What we're doing when we talk about inerrancy is we're going to be making a theological statement. And in the last few weeks, you've heard this comment come up over and over. And it's actually come up in other series too, where we'll say, whatever it is we're talking about is nothing more than a theological statement. It doesn't really do anything in and of itself. So I want to just address this point tonight because inerrancy is going to fit the bill. In fact, you could fill in the blank and say inerrancy is nothing more than a theological statement. So what do we mean when you hear that coming out of the group or some objection? I want to at least address what that means. Theology is just really a belief or an understanding about God. It's our belief or understanding about God. And people have different views, different positions, different beliefs, different understandings. So the objection that's been raised a number of times when we say, for example, if I take the position that something is true or something is there, you might say, well, that's just your belief. Here's some examples. God exists. I mean, that's actually a theological statement because you have to have a belief in that. I mean, you have to believe. I believe this about God, that he exists. Or, for example, God is triune. Uh, That's a belief. That's a theological statement, all right? It's an understanding about God. You could draw that out of the biblical text. You could draw it by either inference or by connecting a couple things. We have a whole series on how we get the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity. How about God is immutable, that he's not changeable? Those are statements that somebody has made. That I, looking over at what I understand about God and what I see in Scripture and my own beliefs, this is just what I come to. How about God is sovereign, that he has control and he's... He reigns over all things and can control all things. That's also a theological statement. I'm bringing these up because when we discuss these things and we get back this kind of pushback on, well, that's really theological, but it's kind of a binary decision. But like in many of these things, like God exists or he doesn't. 
what is meant when someone says, well, that's just a theological statement, is what they're saying is, your belief probably doesn't affect the actual thing itself. And I think that's logically true. God exists or he doesn't. Your belief about whether God exists or he doesn't actually doesn't affect God's existence or not. And I think we forget that sometimes. Like, for example, you might say, I don't believe that God is triune. Well, he either is or he isn't. And actually, logically speaking, your belief really doesn't affect it. Now, of course, we have to make a decision. We have to decide. We have to believe something. So I'm not saying that your belief is inconsequential or not valued in any way. I'm saying that it actually doesn't affect the very underlying thing we're talking about. And you'll see that God is either blank or he isn't, no matter what the position is. Some people think God is changeable. Some people think he doesn't change. You'll see tonight that somebody will cite a verse that says, God does not lie. Some people might say, no, I think God can lie. But, you know, the point I'm trying to make is whether he lies or he doesn't lie is really not up to our belief. So it's true with inerrancy, and it's a little bit of a simplification, but you know what? The Bible kind of either is inerrant or it isn't, depending on how we define inerrancy. And whether we believe it or not or have problems with it or not doesn't actually affect whether it is or not. But here's where all the real estate is fought over. We're trying to define what inerrancy is. And some people, no matter how you define it, go, I just can't buy it. And some people, when they define it a certain way, say, I, can, I think I believe that in those circumstances. Let me tell you what people think inerrancy is. And here's where I'm going to read some stuff to you. I've decided, rather than try to make my own definitions, to read you some of the theological statements that have been put together. And I'm going to read from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Over 300 different evangelical scholars and church leaders and authors and all those kinds of people signed this back in 1978. And everywhere I look, everybody's citing back to this statement. Like This statement seems to be the statement on what inerrancy actually means. So rather than trying to recapitulate it, I'll just read it to you. Parts of it. It's very long. You can look it up online. I'll give you the website. I'm sure all of you are dying to read this. But just listen to what this group defines inerrancy as. We're going to take the, to kind of walk us through how they get to this doctrine. God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. So what's key there? That Holy Scripture is witness to God? That because God can only speak truth, he's inspired Scripture, and of course, it must reveal him truthfully. And we're taking a step towards why these people believe that the Scriptures cannot contain error. Second point, Holy Scripture being God's own word, although it's written by men, superintended by his Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms. It is to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and it should be embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Third point, Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our mind to understand its meaning. A couple of weeks ago, we were distinguishing the difference between inspiration and illumination. That's a statement of belief in illumination. Fourth, being holy and verbally God-given. Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. 
no less than what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And fifth, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. Does anyone have any questions? I want to push back on any of these points? Yeah. I think it would be great if it were that easy where the Bible was so clear cut on every subject that it touches, but it really isn't. And I think in this group especially, we've struggled with scripture that, I mean, does it really mean what it says? Because if it does, this is crazy. Nobody does this. Why is it difficult for you to see that kind of clarity? Because I think some things, not to sound like Jeremy, but some things in the Bible are cultural. Like, I'm allowed to braid my hair, I'm allowed to wear purple. There are certain things you don't have to do because they're cultural, but that becomes, again, kind of difficult to draw the line. Okay. Would it help you in any way if the definition of inerrancy said that we understand that some things may be written at a time and within a certain culture that now needs to be looked at differently because that culture no longer exists. I think that opens it up to, well, is homosexuality wrong or is it cultural? Is this wrong or is it I, I, I was just talking about braiding your hair. You can't pick and choose. There are tons of things and... Some people do think, hey, you shouldn't wear pants if you're a woman. You shouldn't do these things if you're a woman. Or speak in church. Okay. Brittany? It seems to promote an idea that there's like an interpretation of scripture and that's, well, you know, all that it affirms. Well, all that it affirms, like, you have to interpret all of it. Like, it's not like one person's going to read it and see the exact same thing as somebody else in a different culture or even someone in the same culture, like different ages. like gender, like everything, like it influences interpretation and people all around the world interpret the Bible so differently that something like this, like in all that it affirms and like in all the matters, like all of these different things, it's, it just completely disregards that people interpret things differently and it's not clear in everything it says. Let me respond to that. I think that the way you stated it towards the latter half of your comment is accurate. People who hold to biblical inerrancy believe that it does impact your interpretation or the method of interpretation, like your hermeneutic. To properly interpret, they believe you must hold to inerrancy. But I want to point out that inerrancy is not actually a way to interpret. From there, we can interpret correctly. But they're not saying that this is a fixed interpretation. Their belief is that if you don't hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, that everything is subject to just your own decisions about those first things, so you're already behind the curve. That's the view. But I just want to point out that they're not saying that this leads to a fixed interpretation. Because people who hold to inerrancy still come to different interpretations. Yeah. I don't know like, if what camp I'm in or if it's even like whatever. Like, I really believe that what's in there was supposed to be in there, like, how it was canonized, like, all of that stuff. Like, 
I believe that for sure. And that, like, it's from God. And there's a reason why certain things are in there for us to learn. And, like, you have to, in my opinion, to take it that way in order to be able to, like, have a foundation to continue to grow. But I still think that there are, like, cultural things to take into account. And maybe there's, like, old covenant or new covenant or, like, trying to interpret things differently or maybe, like, people make mistakes. So I don't know what that is. Like, can you still believe the Bible is inerrant or could I not claim that? and still allow for like, well, this is valuable for teaching, and I believe it's from God, but we might not be held to such and such in the same way. I just want to point out that that's not actually a, a direct issue of inerrancy. It may be indirectly affected, but you could hold that the scriptures are inerrant and hold that the old covenant has been superseded. Now, that would, that's a minority of belief, but there are people who believe that. But right? maybe not all of it. No, no, I'm not even saying whether it's all of it or some of it. I'm just saying that once you declare that the text is inerrant, doesn't say that you can't then have other beliefs about the scriptures or other beliefs about the life of Jesus or other beliefs about the Old Covenant. I mean, it's not the last word on theology. It's actually, for most people, a beginning. Even among the people that signed this declaration, there is lots of disagreement about how to interpret certain things. All right, let me push forward a little bit more. First of all, you've heard this word, infallibility. What's the difference between inerrancy and infallibility? Who knows? Because <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Uh, here's one group of scholars. This is a quote from them. They say, the Bible is inerrant if it makes no false or misleading statements on any topic. So there's their definition of inerrancy. Very easy definition. You'd think, like, why read those five long statements and the rest of the Chicago statement, which goes on for pages, this definition is, it's inerrant if it makes no false or misleading statements on any topic. It's infallible if it makes no false or misleading statements on any matter of faith and practice. So some people will make that distinction. Inerrancy, any topic. Infallibility is, no, it's not going to make an error on something of faith and practice. This group believes that you can just have an infallible text, but it's not inerrant. There are errors in there. But on the main things, the important things, the things of faith and practice, it's all okay. The people from the Chicago Statement actually say, you know what, there's really no such thing. They're kind of together. We deny that it's possible for the Bible, they say, to be at the same time infallible and errant. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. What does that last line mean, distinguished but not separated? It means that you can say that infallibility only applies to faith and practice, but their belief is that we'd be debating the whole time over what's faith and practice, what's just any topic. Infallibility and inerrancy go hand in hand. You can't really have infallibility by itself. Why is there so much confusion? Well, first, it's because theologians, when they use the terms, especially infallibility, they're trying to define it. I've actually read different definitions of it that I thought, wow, that doesn't sound exactly like the last guy. So theologians arguing the point don't really use precise definitions. And the second thing is lay people. They just hear these two N-words, infallibility and errance. They just think they're the same thing. People use them interchangeably. They don't really know that there might be a distinction. And again, according to some people, there isn't. And according to some, there is. So most lay people are just like, hey, I'll just say those two words together because that way they'll know I'm in the club and they won't kick me out or call me a heretic or burn me at the stake if I say it like, you know. So there you go. 
If they really are the same thing, then it's, we use a lot of redundant words. Because I've read a lot of faith statements say, we believe the Bible is the infallible and inerrant word of God. But they're really saying is, they believe it's inerrant. How did we get this doctrine? How did people develop it? It goes right back to what you believe about inspiration. You could see even in the Chicago Statement, if you believe that God was in sovereign control of the production of the Bible, that even though human authors were writing this, that he was still making sure that it was his revelation the way that he wanted it to be, and that everything came out the way he wanted it to end up, then inerrancy starts to kind of become the derivative of that level of inspiration. There can't be any errors if God is in control of the original manuscripts and how they're going to come out. That's where the view came from. Like you could just say it follows that if God has sovereign control over what the authors are writing, then he's not going to allow it to have errors in there. But of course, as you can already anticipate for next week, if you don't take that view of inspiration and you don't believe that God is in control of it, then you can't get here. This would be silly. So I think it really depends on how you view inspiration. Yeah? Why? Like, why can't there be errors if God's in control of it? Like, God can still have a plan and say, yeah, I still wanted this in there. And, like, my message is still going to get across whether or not this number is right or someone got this exactly right. But I'm going to put it together. There's a reason why it's together the way it is. My message is still going to get across. But I don't think that God... Like, we're human and God is God, and that's true about God, but I think he still could definitely have orchestrated the whole thing and allowed humans to write how we wrote it, and there would be a couple errors in it. Like, I don't understand why they're mutually exclusive. I'm not taking a position. I will tell you that these verses are cited, so let me read a couple of them. So one is Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie. So you start with the idea that God's not going to lie to us if he's in control of the outcome. That's one point. Psalm 12:6, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Every word of God is flawless, Proverbs 30. That's verse 5. Yes? And we're just that's always the objection there's always that objection of saying because of course we're going to bring up our favorite verse for second timothy 3:16, <laughs> right which says that all scripture is god breathed and useful for teaching rebuking correcting training and righteousness i know the objection i of course was waiting for it we have this situation where scripture is telling us that scripture is flawless or pure or without error. So how do we know that those statements are without error? Because that actually becomes a problem, right? And I'm going to repeat what I started with numerous times in this, in this series is, there has to be that point where we make the decision of do we trust this text or not? I believe that scripture says this about itself, and if I believe that God did that and spoke through those people and at least was able to control those texts, then that should be it. Yes? I just don't understand like, why you can't trust it with small discrepancies. Because like, 
because there are. Like, even if you just read through, like, the accounts of Christ's crucifixion, where, like, certain numbers don't want to, like, add up, or one angel, or two angels, or things like that. So the people that really hold to this, like, to the extreme, like, fundamentally, that there's absolutely no error, how would they, do they just ignore that? Or how would they even deal with that? First, to answer the first part of your question, why can't you just believe that it's good on most things and that there's just some errors in it, right? That would be the infallibility position, for the most part. So you might fall into the camp of somebody who believes it's infallible on all the important things, but that there's some minor errors that just, who cares about? They don't affect our faith and our practice. They don't affect or the, the things that, or, right, yeah. or salvation or the things that matter. Okay. And there are plenty of Christians who believe that, by the way. I'm, not, I'm just talking about inerrancy tonight. But there are plenty of people who fall into that camp. But let me address that point about those contradictions. I'm not going to talk about the contradictions tonight because we could do a series on the contradictions, right? But you asked me how do those people deal with it. So I'll answer that. In, in the book Inerrancy, one of the essays is written by Gleason Archer. Gleason Archer is like one of the greatest brains in the church. I mean, he knows the original language is probably like better than the guys who are actually writing. Um, the guy has a degree from, I don't know how many schools, Harvard University, Princeton Theological Seminary. He has a law degree, has a PhD from Harvard. And he's probably one of the few people I've heard him describe as somebody who corrects the lexicon in, in Hebrew, that he actually has such a deep understanding of these kinds of languages and stuff. And he writes a long article in this book about these so-called discrepancies. To give you the short answer, in his mind, these aren't discrepancies. Now, if this was Josh McDowell writing this and evidence that demands a verdict, I'd just go, whatever. I mean, you know, like, these people will do anything to avoid uh, any kind of controversy. But when I see somebody like Gleason Archer responding thought by thought, and he almost hits everyone you mentioned, the two angels, the, the different resurrection accounts, like the numbers that are off here, the ways these are done. He actually, in very thoughtful language, responds to a colleague of his who was also at Fuller Seminary at the time that he wrote this article. And they were both debating back and forth, are these things actually discrepancies? One person is saying, yes, they are. And he's saying, no, 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 I don't think these are really discrepancies. You guys should pick up this book, for example, or look at Gleason Archer's article and read it. There's only so much I can do in like reading and summarizing and translating where if you really want to go deeper into this subject, I'd say pick up the book and read that one chapter. So what are they? Like a small example, if we have one. Okay, it's common in the first century, he would argue, for people to tell stories out of order. They didn't have the chronological sequential way we would do it. So in his view, the resurrection accounts line up perfectly if you just take them, move them, and put them in the right order but they're not written that way, okay? So, for example, some people say there's a two-angel thing, there's a one-angel thing. He has an explanation of how the writers would have written that. But to a 21st century audience, you think that doesn't make sense, and he would point out, as actually everybody would point out, who say you should understand inerrancy correctly, you can't put it to a 21st century test. Yes? I think there's this common misconception that if you don't think the Bible is inerrant or infallible, that clearly you think there's errors. That's neither here nor there. Uh, that, that's, 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 a, that's not even an important issue. I mean, because it looks at it from the wrong angle. It, it looks at it as just uh, that, that's all we're doing, right? We're taking this text apart and we're, looking, we're, we're forcing it to be consistent when that may not be the direction in which that verbal or that written expression of faith was ever intended to go. Okay, let me, let me, let me, let me address that. That's true from the people who don't really value the inerrancy. But let's flip it around. Let's talk about why 
would someone actually value inerrancy? Like, why is it so important to them? And I think a lot of people would say they're reacting to something, like they're trying to hold on to a fundamental belief, they're reacting to some sort of scholarship that's tearing the Bible away from them or something like that, and that's the classic understanding. Interestingly, the Chicago Statement denies that expressly. They say, like, we believe in this, but we deny it's for any reason that's similar to what I was stating. So why, why would they? And the best I could summarize from everything I've looked at is why this is so important is it comes down to that theology again. It's very difficult for people who accept inerrancy or actually think it's a requirement to believe that God could, once again, superintend the text and leave in there things that are not true. You've got to believe both of those things, otherwise you don't get there. So you've got to have a belief that God is in control of what's being ultimately written. And then you've got to believe that God would not lie to us or put things in there that are intentionally false if he's in control. You could disagree with both of those premises. We already see people do. But I'm trying to tell you, if you put yourself in their mindset, that's exactly the reason it's so important. Because those two things for them it changes their very fundamental belief of who God is. It's not just that I need this Bible to be a certain way because then it all falls apart. It's more like my view of God falls apart. If he's not sovereign and if he's leaving things in there that are not true. Um, and the question for Jeremy, actually, just to clarify, I'm trying to understand what I'm You said, well, if, if I, not if you, but if someone doesn't believe in inerrancy, then they don't necessarily believe it has errors. Uh, and so I wasn't sure, like, what, what, I feel like, as far as I understood inerrancy, it means it doesn't have errors. And if you don't believe it doesn't have errors, then you do believe it does. I think the only issue is, it's, I think it's false to assert that the person who doesn't believe in inerrancy is consumed with finding errors, in other words. Oh, okay. okay. In other words, it's, it's, it's as if they're just out to find errors, you know, to like poke holes. And I, and okay. I don't, uh, there are people who do that. But I think that there, that, that there are many scholars who have a problem with inerrancy, not because they want like the freedom to go find problems. It's because they're, and John, you've actually said it, that, that, that their view of God or their view, their understanding of God or their understanding of the way God works is so fundamentally different. It's not operating on a higher level because that's arrogant. It's operating on a different and I would add that that different level begins with a different view of inspiration. Because if you just have a different view of it, this wouldn't bother you. Like if you just didn't believe that God sovereignly superintended the writing of the scriptures through human authorship, like if you didn't buy that, then inerrancy wouldn't even be an issue. I don't even need to reach that question. And that's why I think we put inspiration correctly ahead of this because it kind of flows out of it. And if you don't buy that part of inspiration, then you don't even need, need to address this question. I'm wondering, like, if I held, or I was one of the people that held to this fundamental inerrancy, and I've come across something in scripture that I don't see culturally now or that I don't agree with, like, how would they deal with that? So, like, if I'm a woman, I'm reading scripture in the New Testament, so you can't say it's the Old Covenant, whatever, that says... Women can never speak out in church, never. We are to remain silent. We can't teach anyone except for children and, like, other women and, like, all these things in the Bible that's not happening in most churches. Like, how would I deal with that if I think it's inherent? And then, like, like it 
talks about boys and girls like having dreams and like being prophets and and like it puts it equal. And there's even verses that say about like no Greek, no Jew, no male, no female. So it's like there's this equality aspect and then there's this inequality aspect. So what would they say? Oh, that was just for this time period at this point and then. You're going two steps ahead of where we are. Sarah Sumner believes in inerrancy, and she's written a whole book on why women should speak in church. You have to read the book. It's actually a very well-written book. Whether you agree with it or not, it's actually very well-written and very well-argued. So read it. So would they, just, would they just look for ways to justify it then? It's like not justifying. They're going to say, this text is all true. Now, how do we interpret that in light of that? Let's say a statement about Paul. You'd have to say Paul was speaking to a certain group of people only. Let's say that might be your belief. And he was addressing only one particular church. That's an interpretation of what Paul's letter means. Notice we're not talking about what anything means. If you believe all of it is without error, then now you have to start to understand, okay, what does he mean? And we're not doing interpretation at all in this series. Anyone else? Yeah, just it might be slightly off of my point, so forgive me if I am, but I don't know, to me, the Bible is just ink and paper. Like, I, the question I ask myself is, does the message get, does the point get across? Is the point holy, you know? Is, is the point take different aspects, scripture, word of mouth, you know? There's just a No, I think you're, you're in line with where most people, especially in your generation, are at. That would be a, I would say, that would be an infallibility stance. A lot of people take that position of saying, like, look, it, the main point gets across. What really matters is, is clear. And we shouldn't get hung up in the details. I would go a step further. I read somebody who was arguing that Jesus would go nuts if he heard us like arguing about this, right? And then I heard somebody rebut that and say, but Jesus is the same guy who said not one jot, one, not one stroke is going to pass away, right? So he held a very high view of scripture himself. I don't know. That's another debate. There's a theology again. Do you believe that Jesus would go nuts finding his church arguing over inerrancy or infallibility? Or would you see Jesus as somebody who comes in and goes, I'm so glad you guys take this so seriously because this is my very word written and preserved for you. It's a belief. You have to ultimately come down on probably one of those. But yeah, that's your belief and I totally respect that. Let me just show you what you can find in Chicago's statement. I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to show you what you could find in there. After they go through the five points, it's written in things where they affirm some things and they deny some things. So many of the things that you're asking about are in the affirmations and denials. Like here, they say in, in Article 6, we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all of its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. That's what they affirm. We deny that inspiration can be rightly affirmed of the whole without the parts, or some of the parts, but not the whole. So there's responding to what some of you are already saying. Okay, that's their position. So you might just want to know, do I believe in inerrancy, and what exactly does it mean? Check out what the majority of people cite to. Okay? Um, here's one that I was citing to earlier in Article 16. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been an integral to the church's faith throughout its history. So they're saying basically that for 1,850 years or more, that was kind of the view. They say we deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism, or is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. Okay, I, when I read that, I thought, well, you could say that, but that doesn't mean it's true. I mean, it could be a reaction, or it might not be a reaction. Again, things are either true or they're not. Statements just express what you believe, all right? Let's look at some objections to inerrancy and then kind of leave the rest of the 
wrestling until next week. Here's some objections to why people think, I can't buy this theory. Number one, they would say the Bible contains errors. So I respect Jeremy's statement that most people who do not believe in errancy are not like trying to just find errors. But many of us, especially among the laity, ultimately think I can't buy this theory because I see errors in Scripture. Again, not to bring Morgan into the discussion because he's not here to defend himself, but when we were talking, I said, why would you not accept inerrancy? And he said, because, for example, in Chronicles, there's this part where they talk about the numeric numbers and it's different than it is over here. And I thought, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who've written long explanations about that, and they're not even complicated explanations. They're just saying they're copying errors. Like you can tell when one says 7,000 and one says 700, like somebody added a zero. So in the laity, among normal people, we look at the Bible and go, that seems like it's an error to me. So I can't believe in inerrancy if I see an error. Monique cited the two angels, one angel thing. That's been written about for hundreds of years, by the way. Even Gleason Archer, as he's writing his article, noted that this has been going on since the beginning of the church. They've been addressing this issue. But it's still an issue. Yeah. So the people that hold to NRC allow for copy errors? Oh, yes. If I wasn't clear about that, let me be very clear. Inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts, or what's called the autographa, only. Not and, what we have now. Right. Inerrancy only applies, as inspiration, only applies to the original. So there's no inspired copying going on, no inspired translation going on, and no inspired interpretation going on. You might call that latter one illumination. And the same is true with inerrancy. Like, all people hold to inerrancy recognize that there are variant manuscripts. In fact, that's how they explain away most of the errors. Now, in fairness, the critics of inerrancy go, that's very convenient to say that the originals are inerrant when nobody has the original, right? Very, very convenient. Do you think that presents a problem, though, to say that God's sovereignty was completely involved in the writing of it in the original manuscripts, but nowhere involved in the passing down of the information? I don't. I've read a lot of great defenses for that. God is not in the business of, like, following every copy around. In fact, writing ends up being the most efficient way to communicate the Word of God but he's inspired the originals. And the beauty of it is having so many copies allows normal human beings to sit down and figure out, well, which is the error and which isn't. In fact, that's what textual criticism is. I mean, of all the errors that are out there, very few are really troubling. Everyone can tell that's a copying error. They threw the words around differently or something, okay, or that's just duplicative wording. We talked about that earlier. I've even heard further defenses that once the originals are inspired and inerrant, now you have whole groups of people for the rest of time who could sit down and talk about interpretation, translation, copying. Like that becomes a job for God's people. And I've said before many times, God has this weird habit of wanting to work through his creation. It's always more efficient for God to do everything himself, but he constantly chooses to work through us. I think the transmission of the word is one of those places where he works through us, even through fallen, fallible people that produce fallible copies, he's still at work. But the doctrine of inerrancy, like the doctrine of inspiration, only applies to the original. I, I know, I feel like I'm stacking one block on top of another, and it's kind of teetering, and you're all like, this is just going to fall down. <laughs> Let me remind you of one thing. This is not hard to believe in, like inspiration, inerrancy, plenary verbal inspiration. What is hard to believe in? That a man would walk on the water, that God would come in the form of a man, that he would die for our sins, that all this is hard to believe. 
That's hard to believe, that God could superintend the writing of human authors and get them to do what he wanted compared to everything else is not hard to believe. So I think what you really have to be asking yourself at some deeper level is, what's my belief issue? It can't just be that God can't do this. Because God could create an entire universe by speaking it. I don't think this is an issue for God. I think our issue is we are putting God to our test. We look and go, I think there are errors. It can't be an error. Or, I think human beings are fallible. So they can't produce inerrant text because by definition we don't know everything and we're fallible. So it can't happen. That's an objection. Here's another objection I've heard over and over and over in these writings. I've even heard it here. As we discover more about the languages in ancient texts, we see more problems. We don't understand more about the languages and the people who originally spoke them. Like, we're learning more about the languages, so we see more problems. The early church fathers, they knew the language very, very well. Some of them actually knew the people who wrote some of the New Testament books. They didn't see any problems with the language. Now, I know this one has other issues. in it. Like, for example, when you see in the language, like, oh, we're borrowing from some weird other language, so the dating can't be right. I mean, I understand that. But the criticism is often... As we discover more about language, we see more errors. Just think about that logically for a moment. That's a very 21st century Western perspective for us to be experts on a language of people who spoke it. Modern science and modern discoveries contradict the Bible. That's a view that's taken all the time. Like, hey, maybe when nobody knew anything, that all of this made sense. But the more we learn about the universe, the more we go, mm. I'm not saying that God isn't there. I'm just saying that maybe they got some of these facts wrong because they didn't know. They just didn't know. And again, there's a whole discussion of does inerrancy mean that the writers are omniscient? Some people would say, yes, God is superintending. There's not going to be any errors, even about science, even about creation, even about minute details of physics or geography or history. And other people go, whoa, let's not get carried away. Let's look at what people in that era would know, and was it error or not error for them at that time? Not surprisingly, I actually take the first view. God's superintending this thing, like, it's going to be good. Or he's not superintending it. Like, let's not have any compromises. Either God's superintending it or he's not. Yeah. The fact that for the last 200 years, we do know a heck of a lot more, that, that it really does become a problem. In other words, when I look at number four, modern science and modern discoveries, that's a real problem. It really is. It's not just... You know, I, that I'm going to try and make it fit or that somehow it doesn't, it doesn't impact inerrancy because now inerrancy is not salvation specific, required, whatever language we use to dance around the issue. The fact is, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, I had a certain view. Then as I got older and learned, right, I either changed what I thought or, you know, discarded it or, or modified it or whatever, but when I learned more about language and about culture and ancient societies and science, I began, you know, like, yeah, there are statements here, right, which I just can't believe, because this is just not true. It's just not an accurate understanding of the way the world works. And I do know more than some guy 3,000 years ago did. I just do. I mean, we all do. I mean, not just me, no, we all do. We all took science and history. Hopefully we paid attention in high school, right? We just know more. I mean, we're not some you know, dumb peasant in the 1500s, you know. Okay, noted, yeah. Um, well, I was also thinking about, like, as you were talking about, we would 
believe, you know, Jews walked on water, or these miracle houses, or, or things like that. But this is very interesting because, like, the text itself asserts that those things happened, versus the text does not assert that there was some superintended thing that that the texts are inerrant or infallible. The texts don't assert that, and like we're putting a requirement on it that the texts themselves don't hold up to. So it's just, I think that's a. Yeah, I disagree with that because I think the text infers that. Like we don't just get it out of thin air. Like when the scriptures say that they're actually breathed out of God, that's the description we have. We create a word that doesn't exist to say that this text, these scriptures, are breathed out by God. It's not crazy to infer that the same word breath that's used for spirit throughout the New Testament might infer that. Just like we have to infer certain things about the Trinity. Right? Like you look and you say, there's not one single statement that explains that God is triune. But here I have Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. Then here we have the Spirit and God in some other place together is one place. Like you start to say, this is how we construct our theology. So I think it's fair for you to say that it's not explicit. It's also fair for you to say it's not uh, abundant. right? But I think it would be unfair to say that you can't infer it from the text as you read through some of these different statements. I mean, you might look at the Psalms and go, he wasn't talking about scripture. But, you know, somebody else might look at it and say, no, of course he's talking about scripture. When he says, like, the law is flawless, what's he talking about? We can go back and forth all day long about, is he really talking about scripture or not? All I'm saying is, there's at least some basis to infer it. But it would be wrong to say there's no basis. Yeah? I don't know if I have a question or comment now, but I was thinking about the, the God breathe thing, and I was just wondering knowing what that even meant. Because all scripture is God-breathed. If you, if you attach a different preposition to that, it means something entirely different. You could say that the text was breathed by God, or you could say that the text is breathed into by God. Um, both of those, in my mind, mean the same thing. Like, you could use God-breathed. And so they would be written by men, but... God breathes into that text and through that text, and it and it then becomes useful for teaching. So I just I was just wondering about that. Okay. Well, from everything I've read, the literal reading is God breathed out, not into, but God outbreathed Scripture. That's only talking about Hebrew Scripture, not New Testament. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like it's we're not going to find the explicit wording. He is saying all scripture, though. And in his mind, that would probably be the Old Testament. But again, if we have that for the Old Testament, I don't know why it wouldn't apply to the New Testament, unless he just said, I don't believe anything in the New Testament is scripture. Okay, I'm not going to argue that. That by itself is not a problem for us. It just shows that Paul clearly believed that all scripture was breathed out by God. And that's why I'm saying this whole discussion still roots in what your view is on inspiration. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say, though, that all life is God-breathed, that in God's creative work, right, all things flow from the Creator, including the idea, at least I think, of something being God-breathed doesn't mean that it's suddenly inerrant, at least in the sense that if we look at our own lives as that which comes from the divine, right? But that analogy has been used over and over in the writings, actually not of our time, but of earlier times. Like scripture, 
God made a perfect creation. And then from there, it became fallible, like the original manuscripts that later were copied and had errors. That argument's been existing in the church for a long, long time. So I would actually agree with you. That analogy has been there, but, but you and I would disagree about how it's applied, because they would say, yes, God is a creator, and he creates perfectly each time. But then he allows those things to enter it. Fallible copying, fallible lots of stuff. But I am, again, I'm just pointing out that it's been made. We allow for a copy error. This is where I think I get more on the board with like the infallibility and, and, and inerrancy. Because when I hear arguments, like I hear what you're saying, like Brittany's saying, where she's like, I believe Christ walked on water because the scripture is specific about he did this, but it's not specific about it being inerrant. But that doesn't make sense to me because if the scripture could be wrong, then maybe Christ didn't walk on water. So it's like, less, like it just makes less sense. Like why would I believe Christ walked on water, which is a miracle, just because the Bible explicitly says that when it could be wrong because the whole text could be failed or like wrong. Well, Philip actually kind of highlighted this a little bit in one of his comments. So I'll just kind of say it and go back to the objections because I feel like we're defending in the middle of the objections. <laughs> um, the, the point is that everything we know about the faith begins with scripture. So the people who believe, whether it's an infallibility or inerrancy or both, that's why it's so important for them that we get the foundation right. Because if we have to start picking and choosing. How could you even do that? Yeah, and some people say, well, we have more belief about this, we have less about that. And I agree, there's some things that are more agreed on, there's some things that are less agreed on. But agreed on by who? If it's up to a vote of the people in the 21st century, most of the scriptures are tossed. They're out. If it was up to us in this room, we would toss half the scriptures. Just if I took a survey of what you believed and what you didn't, half the scriptures would be gone. And that's why the people who hold this view say it's important because everything we know starts here. And if it is really true that it's God's revelation to us, and he's setting this as what they call the normative revelation, which is like the standard, then we've got to get it right. That's just their view. Let me go back to these objections because I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant with these. I'm just trying to point out that too many of us easily walk right into these, and I don't think we've investigated them deeply enough. All right, Bible contains errors. Authors are fallible. As we discover more about the language, we find more and more problems. Modern science and modern discoveries contradict the Bible. You know that I don't hold that view, but many, many people do. Questions asked, how can we say that the original manuscripts are inerrant when we don't even have them? So there's that convenience argument, like very convenient to say the originals are all inerrant. We don't have any originals, so there, debate over. That's kind of too cute, some people would say. Here's another one. The doctrine of inerrancy leads to, I can't even say this word. Can you say this word? Bibliolatry. So like biblical idolatry. Last week I used even a harsher word. The idea that the Bible is to be elevated so high that everything else is denigrated, including the ultimate thing we're supposed to believe in, either the living word, Christ Jesus, God himself. Like, we're so focused on the Bible, and the Bible is everything, and I know why, and I'm sure Jeremy and I'll get into it, because we started getting into it last time already, about why that might be going on. But again, the people would respond and say what I just concluded with. Like, this is such a foundational issue. Everything we know about comes from this. We feel like we need to get it right. We're not just trying to make right angles for the heck of it. We really do believe we should know. Inerrancy hinders the exercise of faith and makes the Bible a dead book because it's petrified in time. 
These people say that unless you can come back to it and discover new things and interpret new stuff and see it differently for every generation, it's not a living book anymore. I think that denigrates the doctrine of illumination from the Holy Spirit. Last one. One that Jeremy, I think, wisely pointed out. Paul himself seems at times to indicate that some parts of his writings are not from the Lord. We see that in the prophetic writings sometimes. I think there's a good answer to that, and I probably will have to address it next week, save some of the bullets for next week. But I think that this is not, in my view, inconsistent with the inspiration that could lead to inerrancy. Okay? Next week we'll debate it even more, but I want to be clear. Whether you believe in inerrancy or infallibility, I don't think is an issue of salvation, but I do believe it has great impact on it. I'm just hoping that you'll at least know more about it and next week start to think, what do I think about this? Ask yourself during the week, what do I think about this? Where do I come out on? And probably you have to start back a couple of weeks and go, what do I think about inspiration? Okay, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. It's a little bit rough ending, coming in for a rough landing, but let's leave it there and close up. Let's pray. Lord, take these words and... You do what you will with them. Lord, the most important thing I affirm tonight is that you are. I believe that with my whole heart. And in places where I have erred, forgive me. In places where I have doubted, forgive me. In places where I have not been clear and not stewarded well your resources, forgive me. But Lord, these words belong to you. Everything that we have wrestled with, thoughts that have been spoken and ones that were not tonight, may you take them and work with them in our hearts. Because ultimately, Lord, you are. Pray this in your name. Amen.